right, so it is uh, Sunday, the 9th of June, 2013. We're going to talk about victory this morning. Amen? Victory. Victory is one of those words that in English can mean only one thing. It means that you defeated somebody. It means that you got victory. In Hebrew, it's a different concept altogether. It can include that, but it also might mean that you got saved, right? So the word in Hebrew for victory is Teshua. Now, that's real similar to another word, Teshuba. I can't tell you how closely victory is related to repentance. As soon as a man hits a brick wall and turns his life around, he's already got victory in sight because the Lord is saving him. Teshuba is to turn around and Teshua is to have victory. The King James Bible translates Teshua as deliverance. It translates it as salvation, and it translates it as victory. Amen? Sometimes this was victory against a foreign army. Sometimes this was victory against unseen spiritual forces, and it was always salvation. The words used 34 times in 32 verses. Here's an example. It comes from Psalms 37 and verse 39. The salvation, that's Teshua, of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. He is not just our salvation, friends. That word also means victory. Come on, do you have enemies surrounding you? Wednesday night during the worship service, the Lord told me that we were besieged. Anybody felt besieged in the last few weeks? Come on, you're calling me nine times a day, so we know. It's all right to say it out loud. Your brother and sister is probably going through the same thing. Got relatives that are acting like they lost their minds. Your body's not cooperating with the Spirit of God within it. All of those things, right? The weapons that are formed against us are not dare going to prevail against us. You know why? God's Word says so. We're a part of the victorious church of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 21:31 uses the very same word in this way. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. That's Teshua. If you don't remember anything else from the first couple seconds of this message, if you want victory, it comes through repentance. We need to examine our lives. We need to look and see, hey, Lord, what is it that we could do better? What direction could we go? And then you rest in the direction he gave you rather than fret it. Come on now. It's good to pursue God along with those who are pursuing righteousness, isn't it? Oh, Jesus, it's good. Turn with me to Genesis 32. I want to talk to you about a promise we're grafted into and how we arrive at victory and how we get this kind of overcoming attitude. Say there when you were there. It's Genesis 32, 28. Now, the backstory to this chapter is that a man named Jacob has not lived an entirely righteous life. That's good. I can relate to him. He sought God sometimes, but he also leaned on his own arm sometimes. He told the truth a lot of times, and unfortunately, a couple times when it counted, he was a trickster and a deceiver. Back pushed against the wall, he lied to get out of it. And now he's going to have to meet someone who was the recipient of one of those lies, or at least the beneficiary of it, and it cost him a birthright. And what makes things even worse than that? His brother was bigger and stronger than him. We got any little brothers in the house today? No, no younger. Oh, I got at least one younger brother on the front row. 
Gabriel, if God had caused you to be born first, Judah wouldn't have a chance. But he made you smaller for a reason, son. He made you smaller for a reason. He's got to go face big brother. And now he's going to seek God a little bit on the other side of the Jabbok. Are you ready? Come on, say you're ready. Y'all wake up. Help me out. Brent's ready and he just walked in the room. Okay, here comes the 28th verse. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Oh, goodness, saints. Think about this. The man wrestled with what Hosea calls an angel, but he felt as if he had stood face to face with God, and yet his life was spared. Which of us, prior to Christ, could stand in the presence of God and not be guilty? See, this man knew that he had guilt, and yet God had mercy on him. By virtue of the very name that he bore, he was a trickster, a supplanter, a deceiver. But God said, this is not going to be your authority, not going to be your reputation, your character, or your body of work. I'm going to give you a new shim. I'm going to give you a new name. You are now going to be called the one who reigns with me. You're now going to be called the prince with God. Isn't this every man's story? We start off in the same darkness that the creation started off in. But the light of God begins to shine in our hearts. And He doesn't come to kill us or condemn us. He comes to change our very nature. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Now, he happened to have wrestled with an angel until the break of day. And this seems to have impressed God. And the angel touched the hip of, or the uh, socket of his hip. And the man never walked right. No, I shouldn't say that. The man never walked the same way again, but he walked rightly for the rest of his life. I want to encourage you that this walk with Christ is distinctive. Into the world, it might be characterized by a limp. It might be characterized by weakness. And maybe the vultures begin to surround you and the strong bulls of Bashan begin to encircle you because they think they see weakness. But we serve a God who takes weakness and turns it into strength. So a limp is never a bad thing. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Look at the 35th chapter with me. This very same promise is given in the 35th chapter starting in the 9th verse. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Who changed God's character? <laughs> Who changed Jacob's character? I'm glad y'all caught me on that one. That silence was deafening. God changed Jacob's character. You can't change your character any more than I was able to. You can punish yourself. You can restrict yourself. You can try to lead a life of discipline and you cannot change your own character. But the living God can change your character. I want you to notice something. God has shown up in these two passages to Jacob and in both times he didn't crush him. He didn't step on him. He didn't beat him around. And both times he blessed him. Why do you think God wants to show up for your life? 
He wants to bless you and he wants to change your character. The change in Jacob's life would go from deceiver right into one who reigns with God. And look at Jacob's response. I'm sorry, verse 11, the Lord's still speaking. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. He goes on to say he talked with God there. Guys, what a promise. A man is going to go from the kind of man that lies to his mother and father, that tricks his brother, that is known for struggling with men to a man who is known for ruling and reigning with God. And the promise won't stop there. The promise is going to grow. He says, from you, in fact, in this very land and from you, is going to come kings and communities of nations. Some Bibles will say families of nations. Saints, there was a promise given to a man named Jacob to change his character and bring from him and the nation coming from his body a people that would rule and reign with God. Now, Christianity is taught so many ways today that very often we think what it means to be a Christian is simply to come kneel on this carpet, get your USDA stamp as a Christian because you repeated a prayer that you didn't mean or understand, or maybe you did mean it but didn't understand it. I, I don't know how all of that works. I just know that this promise started in... God having friends that he wanted to change their character and raise up from them people that would change the world as we know it. That is a pretty serious promise, wouldn't you say? Let's look at what happens in Romans 8. Turn with me to Romans 8. You'll be in the 28th verse. This is one of those bumper sticker kind of verses, but I don't think very many people have the background in mind that we just talked about, and it makes all the difference in the world. You ever been struggling, Miss Dee Dee, and somebody looked at you and said, ha, ha, get the victory. You know, it seems so callous. There was a church in the town that I came from that was called Victory. And the people meant, well, they were proclaiming what I'm going to try to proclaim today, the victory in Christ. But it was all too often for you to be in the midst of your sorrows, licking your wounds, staring through the ear hole of the helmet of salvation, and somebody walk up to you and just say, hey, get the victory. And somehow it never helped me get the victory. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't understand what they were. I don't think they knew what it meant. And every once in a while, you'd hear this verse thrown out there. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And as exciting as that verse is, when you've just been diagnosed with cancer or your loved one just died or you just got your house foreclosed on or you're hiding your car from the guy who is coming to repossess it, it didn't mean a lot to me until I began to understand the verse. The nation that that very promise was given to, you are going to rule and reign with God and the whole nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, absolutely went to hell in a handbasket. They kept going into captivity. They got so bad off twice in their history that there was cannibalism among the people of God. How sick is that? As bad as your life is, I doubt anybody in here has been in that place. This is who this is spoken to. A man who is writing on behalf of his people, a Jewish man, says, hey, you need to know something. You've been foreknown by God. And because you've been foreknown by God, He will work things out for you. 
You just have to hang in there. The context was in a nation that was in utter and total desolation and about to be destroyed by the Roman armies. This is probably after a man named Claudius has issued a decree that threw every single Jew out of Rome. Every, can you imagine being thrown out of the nation that your parents and grandparents had lived in for no other reason than you were in love with Yahweh God? It looked like there was absolutely no possible hope for salvation to come from the Jewish nation. And yet we're standing in a time period where the Jewish Messiah had already come. And so the apostle says, and we know that in all things God works. Come on, say that. In all things God works. This doesn't say that all things in your life feel good. It says in all things God works. Now, I have a tool belt sitting right behind that door back there. And in it, there are tools that you can put wood filler and holes. And boy, that feels good. It covers up a scar. There are tools that you can use to sand out rough places. And that looks pretty when it's done, unless you're the board being sanded upon. Right? And I have another one called the rasp. Isn't that a funny name? Rasp. And when you push that rasp across a board, it takes out such big chunks of the board's flesh that it totally reshapes it. I don't know what stage of workmanship you are at this point, but I know this. God will use every tool in the belt for your benefit, not to hurt you, because you have been grafted into a promise that was given to a man that was a trickster and deceiver when it was given. And God said, if you let me, even if you don't let me, I will make you into a prince with me. This said that the people whom God foreknew, Romans 11.2 says that people is Israel. Ephesians 3.6 says something a little different. It says that it was a mystery, a mystery that we could even be included in such a promise. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What God said He would do through Jacob, He promised always to touch the world with. But you know what? Most of us were people who were not even looking for the Lord. And guess what? You were found by Him. When you study the ancestry of Indo-Europeans prior to Christ, it's pretty sad. It's pretty yucky stuff. And God invaded our yuckiness. He invaded our lives and is doing something good. I want to encourage you here today, God is not against you. This week, we've been told that our people had cancer, been told their markers were elevated, been told all those things, and fear begins to creep up. It's an enemy of faith. And so in the name of Jesus, you look it in the eye and you laugh and you say, Nevertheless, God, my God is bigger than your threat, devil. And guess what came back on the next bone scan? No cancer. The promise is not that if you are good enough, if you are wonderful enough, if you perform well enough, He will change your nature. The promise is if you trust Him, He will change your nature. And friends, He's changing it. And our circumstances don't matter. They're just tools that God is using. Somebody say amen. amen. 
I love this next part of Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son. How far might you be from the likeness of his son? Because that's how many tools it's going to take to pressure you right into the likeness of his son. And we serve a God who will use whatever it takes. In my life, it's taken sledgehammers, it's taken boards, sometimes guns and knives. It has taken all kind of things. You know why? I might be the most hard-headed, stubborn man in the room. I just want to make sure the wife wasn't going to yell amen at that. But that's not the end of this promise. He says that, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he is also glorified. What then shall I say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's worth repeating, brothers. If God is for us, who can be against us? This may not be the attitude that you walk around with every day, but it can be. It should be. You know, an amazing thing happened. We did something foolish. Something even indulgent. Wednesday night, we announced to the guys in the church, anybody would like to just go blow some stuff up? I'm talking about, like, just unleash as many rounds of ammunition as we can possibly squeeze off from 9 to 3. Come. I was shocked that there was only 15 or 20 people that came. I, I, I thought the whole world liked to blow stuff up. Just hanging out with guys, just looking around and seeing I remember when that one walked through our doors and how far from God they were and look what the Lord has done. You know, every man left that group walking a little taller. We drug into the Wednesday night service, but when people left the Wednesday night service, their heads were held high. You know why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, that's a revelation worth grabbing deep down in your heart. And don't miss the fact that the nation that he's saying it to has just missed Christ. They are about to fall under the domination of a Roman general named Titus who is going to spare none. Hadrian, who they nicknamed the beast, is going to outlaw Jews from the nation of Israel's capital, Jerusalem. And what is the apostle saying in the face of all of that? Hey, if God's for us, who can be against us? Apparently, God's people are supposed to have a little grit. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring charges against those whom God has chosen? If you are grafted into the promise of Israel, then you are God's chosen people along with Israel. So who's going to bring charges against you? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life. And friends, he's our older brother. Is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we face Death all day long for your sake we are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things. What kind of things, brothers and sisters? All these things. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, 
nakedness, danger, sword. Now, how does your list of troubles compare with this one? Trouble, hardship, persecution. That's something Christians know very little about in this country. Famine. There's something we know nothing about. Nakedness. Struggling just to put clothes on your body. Danger, mortal kind, and a sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The Bible doesn't just say that you're victorious. It says that you're more than victorious. It doesn't just say that you're saved. It's more than saved. Not just the winner of the battle, more than that. What a high calling that is. And you know what it didn't depend on? It didn't depend on how perfect you were. It depended on how much you trusted Him and that showed up in your actions. Oh, that's good news. How can there be three amens for that? How could that be? More than conquerors. Now, I'm going to tell the truth. I often don't feel like a conqueror. Every once in a while, I feel like the gum on the bottom of some conqueror's shoe. Sometimes success comes through the back door of failure. It just does. God will often engineer defeat in your life on a temporary basis so that on a permanent basis, He can engineer victory that changes the world. The temporary defeat changes you. The permanent victory changes the world as we know it. The living God will work through every tool that He can put in your life. And the sooner that we stop being victims and we embrace what God is doing in our life with a smile and say, Thank you, sir. May I have another. The faster we change and the world changes. I'm not for a moment suggesting it's easy. That's why He gave you His very own Spirit. And praise God for that. Anybody love the Holy Spirit of God in the room today? Anybody need more of the presence of the Holy Spirit? And you know what? He gives the Spirit without limit. All we have to do is ask. The only limitation on the nature and character of God that is set up in your life is how thirsty or hungry you actually are. I want to read to you Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Somebody say, me too. But now I obey your word. (laughs) Isn't it good that God appointed some kind of affliction to turn a man around? You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. What kind of heart says something like that? Says, hey, uh, before I was afflicted, I wasn't doing too good. Thank you for that affliction. The kind of heart that found God's shaping in their life and embraced it. And by the way, who wrote the 119th Psalm? A man that had gone through a few afflictions. How about Psalm 1971? It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than 10,000 pieces of silver and gold. How does the word of God become precious to us? Through hardship. The reason that I'm talking about these things today, friends is I hear lots of doom and gloom in the Christian world. And everybody with a prophetic utterance in their life seems to innately know that the next 10 or 15 years are going to be harder for this nation. Everybody can feel it. You can look around it, stick your finger in the spiritual air, and you can sense that something is happening. And when this happens, the faint-hearted among us, which might be all of us from day to day, begin to tremble and go, Oh, no. 
It's getting dark outside. This is the church's finest hour. When God dims the lights, it gives us a chance to shine. While everything is roses and pillow puffs, you can't distinguish the man who proclaims Christ from the man who walks it out. You can't distinguish the blessings that truly have come from a man walking in righteousness from the man who claims to be righteous and stole someone else's money. You can't distinguish those things. But let there be a little bit of affliction. And all of a sudden, there's fewer people at prayer meetings that aren't really born again. There's fewer people in places posing as Christian. Friends, I am excited because I feel the earth in birth pains. It's groaning. Every time, every single time, in the last five times I've been to India, you know what the little old ladies are prophesying that have never seen a TV set? They, they, they don't do anything but read their Bibles. You know what they're prophesying? That we're in the end times and that it is heating up and to prepare yourself. You know, the last place on the planet to feel that tune-up, it's right here. But we're about to get our turn. The church of Jesus Christ will not fail. I can tell you with a great big confident smile, in the name of Jesus, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So that begs a question, friends. Who is the church of Jesus Christ? Who is it? You are. You are members of His body, the church of which He is ahead. And if you are members of the body which is the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then how can hell prevail against you? Come on, somebody say it can't. Then let's not act like it can. You know what? You can have a big vicious dog on the other side of an electric fence and sit there and just laugh at him because he can't get to you. Anybody ever read Psalm 91? The devil is not allowed to take your life. He's not allowed to harm you. He is not allowed to do you harm. What he is allowed to do is every once in a while, God will use that guy's wickedness to shape you, to remind you of who is good, to make you love righteousness. He will use every attempt of the devil to destroy you as his tool belt simply to form you. What kind of control our God has? That makes the devil like a mad dog on his short leash. It really does. Let's do this. Why don't we look at some of our heritage? Is that okay? When we look at where our people have come from, the people we've been grafted into, it reminds us of where we're headed to. Amen? So, how about a guy... No, let's start in Hebrews 11. This is a great place to start. Hebrews 11, start in verse 32. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. Saints, look at what they did. They administered justice. They shut the mouths of lions. They conquered kingdoms. They go on to quench the fury of flames and to escape the edge of sword whose weakness was turned to strength. What problem do you have? It's something that God can turn around, change your nature, and use 
as a strength. The living God uses weak, ordinary people to conquer kingdoms, to administer His justice, because He delights in taking something that is weak and showing Himself strong through it. So how can we glory in persecutions? We can because we know that when we got saved, we got victory. When we repented, we took our first step towards the ultimate victory. Do you remember a man named Abraham in Genesis 14? A man named Abraham had a nephew who was going astray. I've been that nephew. And had it not been for righteous men that spoke good things to me, told me the truth, I might still be astray. But praise God, the righteous should never be alone. When Brother Zeke goes to Washington, D.C., he won't be alone. He'll be joining the victorious church of Jesus Christ there, starting with Brian Hume. Over time, it's very possible that many members of this congregation will go join the fight on that front, and we embrace it. We embrace it because the church of the living God will not see defeat. Not today and not ever because we have a victory. Abraham was not alone. So when his nephew was in trouble because he's living in a yucky place that got conquered by some yucky people, he had 318 well-trained men, disciples, spiritual foot soldiers, if you will. And when his nephew was in trouble, he took those who had been trained, and though the forces against them were superior, he won. This is the father of the faithful. Are you embracing the training that God's putting in your life? Are you willing to be discipled? He didn't choose 300 men who liked him. He didn't choose 318 men who thought he was a good guy or agreed with him. He chose 318 trained men. Jesus has chosen you because our brothers and sisters who are meant to be in the family of God have been taken captive by the enemy. And he is training those who will be faithful to go and rescue them. And he only takes those who have been prepared to do his work. Because the work of God among the fivefold ministry is to prepare others for their work. You cannot disciple someone if you've not been discipled. It can't happen. But disciples are supposed to make disciples. He went and rescued Lot. And he took 318 trained men to do it. You know why? He wanted to win. How bad do you want to win? Hmm? And he, Cody, do you want to win? Justin, do you want to win? You know how you know when you want to win? When it becomes the priority in your life. When you don't just claim it in the name of Jesus, your footsteps are claiming it as you walk in obedience. How about our brother Moses and his song in Exodus 15? In Exodus 15, it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. Our God had just defeated the entire military of Egypt in a single action. And then Moses says these words. Then Moses... I'm sorry. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. What is your strength and what is your song? Are you singing of the glories of the Lord? Because you can. You might be homeless right now. You might be a drug addict right now. You might have relatives that will not speak to you right now. 
And the Lord can still be your strength because it didn't depend upon your character. If you trusted Him, He promised to change your character and use your circumstances to make you victorious, to shape you into a new human being. I'm being shaped into one of those. Gabby, did you have good news this week? Something worth smiling about? God is shaping you, sweetheart. And He's not against you. He's providing for you. Sasha, has the living God been good to you? He is shaping us. Does this mean, Haley, you don't have trials? No, our trials drive us to a place where we seek the Lord and declare He's good in the middle of our trial. Amen, Ella? Ella's about to get as close to Jesus as a human being can get. You know why? She said she wants it. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. The Bible says it. You will be filled. The Lord is my strength and my song. The voice of Moses is crying out to us that the strength and joy of the Lord should flow through us like a song because He's within us. You ever had a song you couldn't get out of your head? I mean, somebody hummed it and you were stuck with it all day? We can be stuck with the joy of the Lord, stuck with the strength of the Lord, flowing through us all day, singing a hymn before you go to sleep. When you wake up, still on your mind, you do not have to look at the world as drudgery and against you. You are not a victim. You are a victor because Jesus has said so. How about Gideon's visitation? In Judges 6, 12, you can find that. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Where was Gideon when God said it? Is God a liar? God speaks to him about what he can become simply by being obedient. He was hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, and God calls him a mighty warrior. There's an angel that was sitting there with him. Lately, the Lord has been showing us an angelic host here with us. Some have heard them sing. Michael's heard them sing. My wife has heard them sing. Some have glanced and and seen them. Some have prophesied entire messages before we preached the messages and mentioned it before it happened. This is all God trying to encourage us with one thing. Just as there was an angel sitting beside Gideon calling him a mighty warrior when he yet stood hiding... The living God is here to call us victors while we yet are still struggling. He will grant you victory if you trust Him. The angel is sitting with us today calling out to the mighty warriors wondering why men and women called by the name of the living God would dare to hide. Oh goodness, could we embrace our destiny? Are you living the life that God called you to be? Anybody in here so excited about where you are today? It's okay to tell the truth. So excited about where you're at today that you're in the center of God's will? Because I feel like I am. Anybody in the center of God's will? Now, friends, look around you for a second. We are the church of the living God. How could it possibly be that 70% of the people in the room do not raise their hand feeling to be in the center of God's will? We have a liar. We have a deceiver. We have an enemy who is circling the wagons around your life trying to tell you you are somebody other than what God has called you. And because you've often believed the lie, that's what deception is, we act in a way that God has not called us to act. 
But when you solve your identity crisis and say, I am a member of the church of the living God and the gates of hell are no real threat to me, then you begin to stand up and fight back. When Gideon found out who he was, he delivered the rest of his brothers who didn't yet know. And God whittled down his army from 30,000 to 300 just to make him weak so God could show himself strong. You say, you don't understand, alcoholism's ruined my life. But you're here today, aren't you? And if you're here today, it's not too late to turn around. Teshuvah and Teshuvah are just about the same thing. Repentance is victory, friends. Oh my, I pray that by the end of this service, you find some spark of encouragement here. Because this pastor will not go down without a fight. How about Shama? You may not remember who Shama is. He's in 2 Samuel 23. Shama took his stand in the middle of a field. He defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. A very great victory. Why? Because he was strong? No. Because he was wise? No. Because he was superior in his military skill? No, the man simply stood his ground in the middle of the field God assigned him. Some of you have serious trials at work. I've seen it. I know exactly what it is. Some of you have serious trials in your family. Some of you are laboring to produce life. You want babies. Some of you are being persecuted by those who should support you. I understand. When we take our stand in the middle of our situation... God, who has promised us victory, brings about great victory. It's just a matter of time. This caused men like Paul to say, gird up yourselves. Take your stand. And when you've done everything to stand, stand in the day of evil. The living God will return for a victorious bride. And you are called to be a victor. Not somebody without problems. Not somebody without struggle, but somebody that knows the end from the beginning because your God has declared it. Friends, God has fixed it. We just don't see it worked out yet. We do see Jesus, though. We see Jesus. Does Jesus have a problem in this world? No. You get tired. Does Jesus get tired? No. You get hungry. You think Jesus is starving right now? And you are in Jesus. You're in Him. You don't have a single problem that He doesn't cure. How about Jehoshaphat? We mentioned him Wednesday night. He had a little revelation in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and their children and little ones stood there before the Lord. I told you about it Wednesday. A vast army is approaching there. And the men, the wives, the children, and... The little ones. That's got to be babies in the arm. Where did they take their stand? They took their stand right there in front of the temple. And because of it, the word of God came through a prophet. And it shows up in the 15th verse. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. It's almost like fear has to be driven out before the circumstances can change. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, 
but God's. You could almost hear the voices of the kings of Judah saying, the battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. We have their testimony of their lives written in this book. It's written to encourage you when you face similar trials. We have the life of Jesus demonstrated and written about, tempted in every way, yet without sin, to sympathize with us in our present situations and show us the path to victory. We lack no good thing. How about the favorite? How about Micah? You can hear in Micah 3.8 the spirit that God is speaking to this church. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. Can you hear the minor prophets speaking to your spirit saying, Wake up! You are filled with power. You are not a victim, not a recipient. You were put on the earth as a catalyst for change. There's not an irrelevant life in here. You may have been relegated to the side of society. But God doesn't call you irrelevant. He gives you the right to receive His Son. And if you receive His Son, He will make you righteous by you obeying Him. He will show you how to display trust. He will show you how to walk in obedience. And He will give you His Spirit to change you. You know what you have to let go of though? Self-sufficiency, blame, the de decision to be a victim. You have to stand up and say, I want what He's offering and I'm willing to fight even with my own thoughts for it. It's an amazing thing that you can preach salvation to thousands. And some can hear it in their hearts and others let it go right by the wayside. And they all heard the same message and they walked out. And we say, God, He just picked some and He didn't pick others. Really? You don't think it's us who hardens our heart? We'd rather charge Him with error? He foreknew a nation and through that one nation, His will was that all men would be saved. Yes. Titus says the grace of God has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What an amazing first 12, friends. How many of you could name the 12 apostles? Nobody wants to be put on the spot, huh? We have such an amazing first 12 when you think about it. Colossians, in the first chapter, third verse, ponder this for a minute. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. This gospel is doing what? It's bearing fruit all over the world. Now, most Bible scholars say that the book of Colossians was written around the year 60 A.D. Those same men will also tell you that if Jesus was crucified in about 33 A.D., relatively speaking, and we see Cornelius, the very first Gentile, coming into the church some 10 years after that. That would be 43 A.D. 
And by 60 A.D., Paul could say in the Word of God, speaking in a spirit of truthfulness, that the gospel was bearing fruit where? All over the world. We start with 12 men, one defects. And by the time we get to 60 A.D., 17 years after the first Gentile convert comes in, the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world? Well, they must have put it on Facebook, huh? They must have emailed it. I know. They got on the radio and preached it. How did, how did the apostles get anywhere they went? They walked or got in boats. And they sent letters by courier. And they reached the known world of their day just 17 years after the very first Gentile convert came in. They must have believed they were victorious. But you know what? They, they probably did not face the kind of trials we face, right? I mean, because you have a Roman emperor who believes he's God and will kill you for not sacrificing to him as God before you buy or sell. You have that? No? I don't understand then, because there's more than 11 of us in here. It must be that we don't understand who we are in the way that they understood who they were. It must be that we have an identity crisis and we don't understand we're supposed to win. Maybe we think we're just a punching bag for the devil. That we're supposed to sit around and whine and talk about who had to endure more. Friends, these guys joyfully gave up their lives. Philip stood outside Heropolis. There was a gate at Heropolis that proclaimed Domitian was Lord and God. And Philip stood outside it with his unmarried daughters who prophesied. And he looked at the gate and he thought about it. He said, I can't walk under that gate. If I walked under that gate, it'd be the same as agreeing with it. You talk about a strong conviction. So they crucified him on the gate upside down in front of his wife and children. Philip foolish? Or did Philip understand that he was already a victor no matter what they did to him? Do you know that they can kill a man like Stephen who knows that he's loved by God and that the heavens are watching him? And what did it actually do? It spread the gospel to the furthest corners of the planet. The church of the living God is an anvil that wears out hammers. So you're beat upon a little bit. Consider it shaping, free body work. Put on some love bondo. Some grace from the living God. Declare yourself dead to sin and alive in Him. Joel, you've been a little beat up lately. But you know what? It hadn't drained the joy out of Joel. It hadn't. He hadn't let it. You have to fight for it, Joel? Does he really have to fight for it? He does, doesn't he? I see Joel on his knees a lot. And when he's not on his knees, I see his hands raised testifying to the living God. Joel, three years ago, four years ago, were you married, happy, productive part of a church, doing good, a good member of society even? Three years ago. Three years ago, he's struggling with homelessness, struggling with other things that are just none of your business. But you know what he is today? He's full of power. He has learned who he is in Christ. Now let me ask you something. I know Joel's pretty, but do you think that's why God did it for him? It's because God only meets with people over six foot. Is that what it is? 
God likes redheads. The, the gospel call is going out to the world. We have a choice how we respond to it. You know what is not a light to anyone? Walking around miserable. That, 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 I never saw anybody war, born again because they saw miserable people. Anybody who is excited about Jesus and said, Oh man, can I have some of that? Because we were mournful licking our wounds and our bent sword of the Spirit dragging behind us. Of course you're attacked. It's an honor to be attacked. It means that you pose a threat to the enemy. Heaven is with us. Don't be discouraged, friends. When we look at what they did in the book of Colossians, we need to understand we don't just have an advantage in that we have the internet, right? We don't just have an advantage in that we have super highway systems. We don't have just an advantage in those ways. You know what the Old Testament saints that we read about when we started had to fight through? Something you don't. What does Colossians 1.22 say? But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. When the book of Colossians was written, the work on Calvary had been done and it was possible to be standing there in credited righteousness, not having one single accusation stick to you because the merits and works of Jesus were being credited to you. Friends, Gideon didn't have that. The accuser of the brethren has been cast down, Revelation 12 says, and we are now free from accusation. Free. Even in the heavenly realms, the fury and opposition we face has no traction upon us. Accusations don't get to stick to us because we're credited with Christ's work. Can you imagine laboring for 4,000 years and all you could do is agree? Yeah, he said it and it's pretty much true. Lord, if you don't do something to say, there aren't enough goats for me to kill or lambs for me to sacrifice to deal with this. And I do it year after year and it, it at best just is a temporary appeasement. We don't even have to fight with that. The living God has made you a way to stand rightly in His presence. He's made you a way to stand in victory that can be ours. If you really believe your life is pardoned and you deserve death, can you imagine the day of an execution, a guy getting a pardon and walking around going, I've just been through so much, man. Can you imagine that? It must be that many Christians don't really believe that they had a death sentence. Either that or they don't really believe they've been pardoned one or the other. How can we not be happy about such a great salvation? The accuser of the brethren has been cast down. <laughs> you ever heard somebody lie about you at work? I had a journeyman one time that he was, I, I understand. He bent some saddles and he bent them wrong and he was worried he's going to get fired over it. Two-inch conduit's expensive, especially the rigid kind. So when the foreman comes to him, he says, yeah, I was trying to teach that helper you gave me, and uh, he messed those up. How's that feel? The problem is, is the same man later forgot, 
and said something about the foreman to the supervisor that wasn't true. God's got a way of doing those things. You know what I'm saying? Bringing out into the light what's going on. The guy who used to accuse you has been found guilty himself, and he's been dismissed from the boss's presence. He has no more audience before the living God. In fact, the 12th and 13th chapter of Revelation tell us that he is furious because he knows his own time is short. It sounds a little bit like the book of Revelation is saying he knows defeat is imminent. How come the saints of God don't know victory is imminent? We can't grab hold of the same revelation the devil already knows is true. What did the demons say to Jesus when he walked up towards them? Son of God, have you come to judge us before the appointed time? They were living in fear and anticipation of our victory, friends. What would happen if you grabbed hold of the idea that you could fight and win? In Acts 4, they seized Peter and John. Acts 4, 3. And because it was evening, they put them into jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about... You mean if you put me in jail, 5,000 people will get saved because of it? What happens if you kill one of them? Well, Acts 6 and 7 say that the gospel will go to the entire world from that action. And maybe even one of your persecutors by late Acts 8 and early Acts 9 becomes a champion of the faith. Do you really think that if the rulers of this age had understood what they were doing, they would help you spread the gospel? <laughs> they helped spread the gospel by bringing persecution against the church. And we just happen to be of the kind that when we get struck, wake up and do what God called us to do. You ever seen a boxer come in cold? Comes in cold, he forgets he's in a fight. Better knock him out quick, because if you don't, he might wake up and you have a real fight on your hands. I believe that the Spirit of God is waiting for the church in America to wake up. I believe he's been prophesying it through everybody that I love for more than 20 years. The institutions have put us to sleep, and our affluence have allowed us the luxury of folding our hands during the harvest. And I say that time is coming to an end, and God bless it, I'm excited about that. Among you, you have the ability to harvest the rest of the world. When Brother Hill showed up here, a member of our board, and Brother Wade showed up here, they told us such things as Jesus didn't say, pray for there to be a harvest. He said, open your eyes. The harvest is ripe. He didn't say, pray that salvation break out, something I pray all of the time. Very convicting to me. He said, pray for more laborers that understand and will work. Come on, church, we can do this. Heights, depths going to separate you? Ephesians 1.22 says, And God placed all things under His feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You are the very members of Christ's body. 
The same ones that Matthew 16, 17 says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my... That's you. You are the church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Are you overcoming or is it overcoming you? Because if you be in Christ, it's not possible for you to overcome, be overcome. It's maybe time to think about this. Colossians 1.25, Paul made this statement, and it's one that I don't think very many ministries can make, at least not the popular ones, or they wouldn't be so popular. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present the Word of God in partiality. To present the Word of God in an acceptable or palatable fashion. How do we present the Word of God? In its fullness. You mean that we don't need a skinny gospel like today's skinny jeans? We don't need a gospel light so that people can be asleep? In the light, not a gospel that allows the world to stay in perpetual darkness. Not a gospel that says, no hell, all is well. If we will stand up and proclaim the whole truth from beginning to end, starting with the fact that you still very much struggle today and God has mercy on you, and ending with the fact that He has poured His power into you, unless, of course, He hasn't, then you need to humble yourself and find truth so that you can receive it. But if we start with the beginning, which is I am, not was, am, a broken man because of my own flawed character, but the work of God is changing me, and His Spirit is within me, and there's nothing that I can't do. And I have no fear for tomorrow because the living God is with me. This kind of confidence is ours if you take hold of it. Do you believe that you have to sin? Do you live like you don't have to sin? Your flesh can't make you do anything, friends. We have one obligation, and it's not to the flesh. It's to the very Spirit of God. Habakkuk 3.13 says this, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness and stripped him head to foot. I don't know about you, but I've been beat up a couple times in my life. Before Christ and since, but before Christ was much worse. But I've never been beat to the place where I was completely naked and left there. Never. But Habakkuk presents the prince of the power of the air is beaten and left naked. Romans 16.20 calls him crushed beneath our feet. The Bible proclaims these truths in an undeniable way. When will they become real in our lives? How about Psalm 108.13? With God we will gain the victory and He will trample down our enemies. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Bob, do you believe that God will trample down our enemies? Do you believe it, Daniel? If you believe these things are true, what obligation do we have to live like they're true? Do you feel beat down? 
The living God's spirit is here to raise you up. We don't have to live in a defeated way, friends. His power is available for us, for all who will believe. Revelation 21 is where I'm going to stop. He said to me, verse 6, it is done. When did he say it? When is this book being revealed? The revelation of Jesus Christ is being revealed when? Somewhere between 90 and 100 at the end of the first century. And what is the first word there? He said to me, it is done. For him, it's a closed matter. You're already victorious if you'll trust him and walk in it. I am the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, the last, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. He who what? Overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his and he will be my son. I will be his God and he will be my son. You know, John said, as many as who believed on him, he gave the right to become sons of God. And here we hear that it's a finished matter. All you have to do is overcome. Apparently, believing that you were a victor would cause you to overcome. Saints, if you believe you're defeated before you start, you don't have a shot. If you believe that you have to let your relatives go to hell, if you believe you have to let sickness run wild in your life, if you believe that you're a victim, then you cannot have victory. But if in the name of Jesus you dare to believe something outside of you, the power of the living God will reach down inside of you and change you and the world around you. There is nothing that cannot be yours. We're heirs of salvation and the world. Y'all stand to your feet.